for those listening to us today, so this is being re recorded. I'm sitting with Mustafa Koida of Koida Milk. Hi, Mustafa. Hey, how are how's you it going? today? I'm good. Um, today's episode is super special. We've been having like a running theme on food at the office. Uh, the last episode was also about food. So we're like big food people in the office, even though some of us has, have pretty strange diets. And I'm looking for Khalid here, but I can't see him. Um, but we'll talk about that later. I think you're hiding. Um, so it's a big topic, but I think what's special about today is we're talking about something that's pretty much been a staple in our pantries and most of our pantries here for ever since, you know, forever. Um, why don't you kick us off with an intro? I think it'd be great to kind of dig into your background, where you grew up, what you think shaped you as the founder you are today, sure. um, what you were doing before Koida, because it was extremely different. Yeah. Yeah, I can give you a little bit of uh, Mustafa 101. Uh, if you'd like. So uh, my name is Mustafa Koida. I'm the founder and CEO of Koida. Uh, I grew up in the, in the United States. My parents immigrated from India in like the 60s. Um, and growing up in New Jersey and Chicago, my dad always teased me. He said I was a, a coconut, brown on the outside and white on the inside. Um, and so growing up in the U.S., um, you know, I went to a regular state school, uh, got a degree in marketing. Um, I started out in accounting, but I tended to just be passionate about marketing and switch majors. Um, and then a couple of things happened to me um, uh, in my life that I think helped me become a su successful entrepreneur now. And I think the first thing is that when I got out of school, I went into the tech business. So I started feeling like the tech vibe or business culture in the US during the dot-com phase, which mm -hmm. was very interesting. And I joined two startups. And in both startups, I was employee number four. In both startups, the founders failed miserably. And I was around that. And so, you know, in one startup, the founder didn't have the right strategy. And another startup, um, the founder was just all over the place. You know, he would have raised millions of dollars and he liked a girl who had a PR firm in LA, so they'd get a contract. You know, he liked traveling to India, so they would get a contract. And I just saw a lot of mistakes. And, you know, I, I felt the repercussions of them as an employee, um, but I learned what not to do in a startup. And I thought that was the best MBA I could get in startup you know, culture. Um, then after the two startups, uh, I remember I kind of moved into another stage of my life where I wanted something more stable. I wanted to get out of like the dot-com culture and whatnot. Um, and I'd just gotten married at the time. Uh, and so I was at my second startup and I just gotten engaged and the founder came to me and he's like, hey, Mustafa, could we cut your salary in half? And I was like, what are you talking about? I just like proposed like last week. I'm, I'm you know, an SOL right now. And he's like, yeah, if we can cut your salary, the country, the company can live another three months. So I was like, oh, my God, I, I mean, I got to like find another job. I got to do something. And I remember I was in London and I think this is where I saw my persistence come out the most. But I got on my computer. I think I like sent 100 CVs out through monster.com to New York City because I wanted to get back home. Um, of the 100 CVs I sent out, I got like 10 responses. Of the 10 responses, I got like two interviews. I took all my money and got on a flight, flew to New York City. The first interview canceled. And then the second interview was for an inside sales position for South America at a facial recognition company. And I went into that interview so desperate <laughs> and I just worked it. And I like, I, I really sold myself and convinced them that you got to hire me. I'll help you with their sales. I also speak Gujarati and you know, all this. And I got, I got the job. Um, and I moved to New York city 
And, uh, and then I was in the defense business or national security business for about a decade selling facial recognition, facial recognition systems just before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And that was an amazing part of my life. Um, the company was funded by DARPA. We had like facial recognition and this guy rolled up like three different industries, facial, fingerprint and iris scanning. And then um, one day the company was like, hey, there's a conference in Dubai. And they're like, you're the only guy with the tan and your name's Mustafa. Why don't you go to this <laughs> conference? And I'm like, I don't speak any Arabi, but they're like, just go, right? So as an inside sales guy, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm outside sales now. And maybe I can like, you know, I get tickets. I can travel to Dubai. I heard about it and this and that. And so they flew me out to Dubai and I just saw this huge opportunity at the time. It was pre-Arab Spring. Uh, The GCC countries felt like national security was a big priority for them. I got to sell and work and partner with some of the leadership in the region. And I built up a a quarter of a billion dollar pipeline for the company in a couple of years. And I think that was just me hustling, um, you know, working it, being persistent, uh, being honest uh, in my salesmanship and being very customer driven, listening to the governments, listening to what they want and giving them what they wanted. And I and I plant those seeds because it's those things that I learned in that business that I also apply to Koita today. So um, I was in the business uh, of defense for about a decade. Uh, and to sort of bring it to an end and, and talk about Koida, after about 10 years in the defense business, that company got sold. I worked for Boeing on the defense mm-hmm. side for a couple of years. And I felt like um, I just felt very complacent. You know, I was making like half a million dollars a year. I was traveling first in, in business class everywhere, talking to these world leaders. But I just felt like I was a cog in the system. Uh, I didn't feel like I had any effect. Um, I had no control. I, I just, I was getting complacent. I was gaining weight. Um, I wasn't happy. It was affecting my personal life. And I felt like I was going through my midlife crisis, basically. And I wanted to do something different. Uh, and at that time, you know, I have three kids now. My, my third child was just, just about to be born. Um, I realized that, you know, I was very passionate about healthy living. Uh, I realized that healthy living started with healthy diets. Um, and sleep now. Uh, and, uh, and I said, I, you know, I wanted to make a jump and get into the food business. So um, before I left, I did a little bit of recon and I started, you know, I used to go to these defense shows like the Dubai Air Shore, the Abu Dhabi Air Shore in Saudi. So I went to a food show uh, in LA called Expo West in Los Angeles, it's the biggest natural food show. And I just wanted to see what it was like. You know, there's a huge trend in the US. And I went there and um, you know, I, I show up to the show and I'm like in a suit with a tie in L.A. And it's like 90 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, and everyone's like there's like yoga classes. Everyone's in flip flops. There's like food everywhere. And I'm like, wow, this is so cool. You know, a lot better than what I was used to in, in the defense business. Um, and I realized that I wanted to be in this business. I wanted to be in the healthy living, healthy eating business. Um, and so that's kind of Mustafa 101 from like where I started to to just before I started Koida. So how did you get from that to landing on, okay, I want to build this brand and the product is plant-based or organic milk? Yeah, so I never landed there. Okay. Um, I think um, one thing that I would say is my entrepreneurship journey didn't start with like a cookie cutter vision and a 20 page business plan saying, here's where I want to be in three to five years. I did not have that. Um, I I think it all started with the fact that I was just yearning for freedom, 
right? That, that was the driving factor. And when I say freedom, I don't mean financial freedom. I just wanted freedom to run away from like the corporate system. And I wanted freedom to be able to, you know, write my own destiny, you know, and like write my own story and have control of what I was doing. So I'll, I'll answer your question by saying that my first jump into entrepreneurship was like, I just wanted freedom from the system. And I wanted some way to make a little bit of money to sustain my basic lifestyle, right? Um, and then what happened is I started, I think one of the themes that's helped me is I started doing a lot of experimentation and a lot of, and I asked a lot of questions. I did a lot of proprietary primary research and based on probably proprietary primary research, testing the waters, like lots of little baby steps, going to a lot of food shows, asking a lot of people in the business. That's where I started to slowly in phases develop my business plan because one thing that people don't know about Koida is over the last 10 years, we didn't start as a milk brand with plant-based milk. We actually started as a trading company. So I was like, I want my freedom. I want to, I need a little bit of money to get into the system to, to hire one or two people. And I started trading tea. And so what I did is when I left defense, I went around and I went to like Spinney's, Panda, Carrefour, all these buyers. And I was like, what do you guys want to buy? You know, what are you looking to buy? What's important to you? What do you, what are the trends? And one of the buyers at Pando is like, um, we have this private label tea contract that we're going to award. It's like worth a million bucks. Um, that's what I need right now. So I ran around and I had some connections here and there. And I used my uh, defense executive Rolodex and skills and salesmanship. And I went all around the world and found a private label tea uh, co-packer in Africa. I signed a million dollar contract and I made 6% margin. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in business. I got a million dollars coming in and, and here that's we go. Great. Now, I was like, this is great. We shipped like 40 containers. And then I think in November, on like month 11, the Panda buyer is like, hey, Mustafa, this guy in Sri Lanka beat your price by one cent. I'm canceling the contract. And I'm like, oh, shit, this private label tea business isn't that good. You know, I need to do something better or a little bit more sticky, right? So then um, <laughs> a lot of my friends were like in the food business, like, hey, you got to get an agency for a brand. If you've got the brand, you know, then you've got a little bit more leverage with the buyer and this and that. So I went around to the trade shows and, you know, I couldn't afford the research back then. I didn't have the Gartner reports. Everything I've done has been bottom up. Right. So I started looking at the stores in the West and what was getting a lot of facings. And at the time it was coconut water. And then there was those little opportunistic snacks mm -hmm. were growing. So I signed a contract to get the agency for Go Coco Coconut Water and Snyder's Lance Pretzels. And on year two, I was an agent for these two brands. And I think I did $600,000 in revenue in year two at 18% gross margin. So I'm like, oh, this is great. Same gross profit, a little less revenue, but I've got a brand. Then what happened, like, you know, 12, 14 months into it is the coconut water company. I was their biggest customer here. I built the brand for them, but they were having a hard time in the UK where they're based, you know, with all those brands and they went out of business. So I'm like, oh shit, my principal is out of business. I'm out of business too. And then I think Snyder's Lance got bought by Campbell's and then they had to switch to the distributor. I'm like, this is all gone, you know, or that was happening mm -hmm. sort of in process. So I, I realized that, look, um, I'm a really good brand builder. I have some experience trading food and shipping 40 containers all around the region. I have some experience now building up a brand that's not known here managing retailer contracts, realizing that you get rebates that you don't really know about sometimes. Um, 
I think I'm ready to start my own brand. And that's when I started doing a lot of research. And I think the key to our success is proprietary primary research, getting your, rolling your sleeves up, getting 20 mothers in a room uh, times 10 uh, in different countries, asking quantitative questions um, and non-quantitative questions and understanding what they really wanted to buy. And what I realized is that through some of my proprietary primary research, talking to buyers, looking at what was in the market, um, and going to trade shows that there was a real opportunity with organic milk. Um, and so, for example, when I went to Expo West, like I think three years later, again, I didn't have the research to see where in the organic space a lot of the money was at. But one thing I could tell is that Organic Valley and Horizon had the biggest boots mm. and they had the best champagne at their parties. And they had like so many salespeople. And I'm like, well, the organic tea guy who has a really small booth in the corner, who's got no party at all, you know, the money's got to be in, in milk, right? And so at the time, and the research showed it, you know, all jokes aside, I did see some of the, 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 the top-down research, but milks and meats is where I saw the biggest health delta uh, when you go organic. And, and those are some of the reasons why I chose okay. organic milk and, and launched it. Okay, and, okay, so I guess the, the, the question here is, you were based, you were working in New York before, correct? But you decided to build the brand starting from here. Yeah. Why? So I was in New York uh, during my defense career. That career moved me to London, and that career also moved me to Dubai. So I was at the tail end of my defense career. So when I was here, I did defense for a couple of years. I was running like the Middle East for, for Boeing at the time. And that's when I had sort of my midlife crisis. And I thought I should launch it here uh, because one, I'm here. Uh, two, I saw the opportunity because the shelves at the time seven or eight years ago had one skew for organic mm -hmm. milk. Um, and I saw that the penetration rate in the United States was like 30%, you know, conventional to organic was 30%. The you penetration, saw I saw the trend coming here and I just took a very proven business opportunity that worked in the US and in, in Europe and replicated it here. So super early on, how did, did, did you differentiate the Koita brand? So, so you're up against like mammoths yeah, I am. here. Look, I think the real question is how did I differentiate not my brand, but how did I differentiate my strategy? Mm. And I think the strategy helps you differentiate the brand. And what I did is I realized that, and I still realize it today, is that you do not compete with the big guys. You just can't. I mean, they have billion dollar budgets. I'll tell you right now, Arla on one side is a $16 billion company, and I'm competing with them on dairy. And on the other side, I compete with Alpro, which is owned by Danone, which is a $40 billion company. So I don't, I didn't start my business by competing with them. What I did is I looked at a differentiated strategy and through my proprietary primary research, I found the cracks in the consumer um, requirements that were being fulfilled by the big guys. And your single biggest advantage is agility, right? So I was listening and taking my proprietary primary research and then converting it into products on the shelves in like 180 days. Right. Whereas the big guys would take 24 months, you know, to do that. So to answer your question, I differentiated the brand by differentiating my strategy in the beginning. And how did you how did you get the big guys to take such a young brand seriously? Well, I don't I didn't try. It wasn't in my mind to have Arla and Alpro take me seriously. I was just focused on the customer the whole time, especially in the early days. I was laser focused on the customer. And my whole philosophy has been, you know, go an inch wide and a mile deep. 
right? So yeah, I was keeping an eye on the, on the big brands. Um, I was tracking their pricing, tracking what they were doing, but it was 100% customer driven. So like, for example, we were doing coffee mornings with moms. You know, I mm -hmm. think the big guys probably didn't take me seriously in the beginning, but one of our secrets to our success when we launched is we would get like 10, 15 moms together. You know, some of them would be influencers or bloggers or what have you. I would go there, you know, get, tell them my story, uh, show them the product range, ask them questions on what they wanted next, all in like 45 minutes. Each mom would have like, you know, a thousand followers. She'd be like Instagramming and Facebooking. And it was like word of mouth, guerrilla, social media marketing, you know, convergence. And if you do 10 of those, you're hitting 100,000 people, word of mouth, social media. And those are the kinds of things the, that we were doing uh, to build up the market. And I think the result of those made products move off the shelves. And that's when I think the competition started, you know, putting the magnifying glass on us and saying, hey, what's Coida doing? Let me try and copy them or, or do something similar to what they're doing. Does that answer your question? It does. I think timing also played uh, a role there, right? With social media and like the emergence of micro-influencers. Yeah. So, so we started using social media before any of the big guys were. And this is about seven years ago when social media bloggers didn't even have rate cards. You know, we were making rate cards with some of the, with the famous moms and Chris Fade and all these folks mm -hmm. that kind of helped us build our brand. So I think it was, a, I think with social media, it was a combination of the content, the channel and your timing. You know, if you get those three right, it equals sales, right? And so on the content, the way we differentiated is we were very cavalier with our marketing. You know, we weren't very conventional. I think the conventional marketing is like, hey, here's our brand. And, you know, you have some mom holding it and it's just so cooked and canned, you know. We had just crazy stuff happening. I mean, Chris was like pouring milk on his chest and it was just it was just nuts, you know. Uh, I, I'm not going to say we, we would do stuff like that now, but we really had to raise an eyebrow. And so I think that's what young challenger brands are doing. Um, and then social media, as, uh, to answer your question, was just coming up. And we kind of like, I think we were able to ride that wave at the time. There was a bit of an inflection point. And we, I think we were the most prevalent homegrown premium food brand in social media in Dubai for about a year or two, because we just moved fast, you know. And, you know, I got a 17-year-old daughter who rolls her eyes every time I look at her. And she was on TikTok and Instagram. And Serena was like, she was like, Dad, you got to be on this. And, you know, here's how you got to do it. And so she actually, my, my kids kind of helped me with some mm. of it too. Yeah. So speaking of raising, I want to switch gears a little bit. You, when I was prepping for, for this chat, you, you've mentioned a few times that, look, you know, you wanted to kind of test this out, pilot this, reach product market fit, but you didn't want to raise no. And then you decided to continue self-funding the business. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I can unpack it. I mean, I think uh, you have to ask yourself first, what do you want as an entrepreneur, right? And the answer to what you want is both personal and professional. And the professional, obviously, yeah, you want to make as much money as possible. You want to be successful. You want to, you want to grow, you know, professionally. I think back to my earlier point is I wanted freedom. Right. And I felt like depending on the business that you're in um, and the type of business, you know, I think that I didn't want to like 
come up with a business plan and sell 51% of the company and end up working for someone on year two. You know, to, that was just not what I personally wanted. So part of it was personal, right? I think the other part is just the philosophy that I don't believe in fast money, right? I, I, I mean, there are, you know, there are some really great stories here in Dubai, but I don't really believe in go big or go home. I believe in a very calculated step-by-step -step process, experimental process where, you know, you take baby steps and grow a much more sustainable business versus growing too fast. Like in the CPG business, you know, growing over 50% a year isn't healthy sometimes. In COVID, we grew 50%. And let me tell you, if I had 20 million in the bank or 100,000 in the bank, it was tough. You know, it was really mm -hmm. tough. So what I've done is like, for example, let's look at it from different sides of your business. On the supply chain side, you know, if you're like, hey, I want to be in 10 countries, we're in 10 countries now, and we have 27 products right now, it would be a disaster. What we did is we started with just Dubai. Mm -hmm. We're like, let's just try and make it work. Not even, not even Dubai, that's even too broad. We just wanna make it work in two retailers and maybe one online retailer and that's it. Let's make it work, let's, get, let's make less expensive mistakes there before we start trying to scale up. So that reduces the amount of money that you need to run the business. The second thing is on the supply chain side, we didn't start with 27 SKUs. We started with, we, I wanted to start with one, right? Which is whole one liter milk with vitamin D. We did two, right? And we're like, let's just make it, let's see how the supply chain works with just two SKUs, right? And then on the, on your GNA, right? We had, I had four employees, you know, when I, I did everything, you know? And so I reverse engineered how I built the business based on, three months projected cash flow surplus, you know, when I had it, right? And so, so I was able to, so based on sort of my philosophy, based on the fact that I wanted freedom to a certain extent, uh, and based on taking it in baby steps, we're able to self-fund it. The other ways that we're able to self-fund it is as we built up our proof of concept into like viable businesses, you know, we leaned on our retailers and we're like, right. listen, I'm not, you know, I'm not P&G, you know, we told them straight out. I said, you know, the money that goes into our bank account is paying salaries this month. And they were able to discount a little bit, pay us earlier. Our suppliers started seeing a spike, thank God. And we we're like, hey, we need, you know, we need you to help us finance the business. So we used, you know, we were, we were bring, discounting our invoices, leaning on our suppliers and, you know, hustling. And that allowed us to self-fund. So is the message scale does not necessarily come at the cost of dilution? I don't know if I agree with that context or that, that, that premise. You know, I think it depends on what type of business you have. It depends on what you personally want for the business. It depends on the marketing dynamics, you know, how competitive or not competitive it is. It depends on your business plan and what your window is. Right. I think you have to take all those factors because there are some businesses right now, honestly, that need to raise as much money as possible and they need to grab that market share today mm -hmm. because it's the barriers of entry are very low and someone is going to grab that pie before someone else does. And there are industries that in new industries, especially that 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 I think you can ask that question to. I think in my in my personal business, you know, I had a personal MO that was slightly different. I was a food brand, you know, and, uh, and I was focused on very niche uh, verticals. And I was lucky enough to be able to 
take baby steps in my business. Uh, so I, that doesn't exactly answer your question, but I don't know if, I think yeah, that I think premise depends on, yeah, on, on what type of business and fair. situation you're in. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna do just a quick check. Does anyone have any questions? If not, we'll continue. Yeah. All your SKUs are plant-based, or what's the, the so, split So right now, so we launched the business with organic dairy. Uh, based on a lot of proprietary primary research and focus groups, um, we found that lactose-free was a big requirement in the market. So then we launched our second range, which was lactose-free dairy milk. Um, and then I'd say in the last few years, again, based on a lot of research, we, you know, a lot of our customers are like, I want an almond milk and an oat milk. And so that's the third range or the third phase. And right now our business is like 30%. 40%, 30%, it's kind of split evenly, but I'd say lactose-free is the biggest right now. Lactose-free dairy. Yeah. And you only do milk, you don't do other dairy products? Yeah, right now we're just in uh, RTD beverage, yeah, in milk. Yeah. So, anyone else? All right, so we'll, we'll continue. Sure. Um, so, the, the, switching gears again, which do you feel is bigger, the brand or the business today? Do you feel that the brand is bigger than the business? Well, what do you mean by that? So do you feel like there's a lot of brand recognition, but it feels like it's a little bit bigger than what the business could be? I mean, it's a CPG brand and we're in like, you know, 300 locations. So a lot of people know about the brand. Um, you know, as the brand has gotten bigger, our business has grown. So it's a really subjective sort of question. But I, yeah, I think in general, I would have to agree with you. A, a lot of people know about the brand. Um, I feel like I'm always learning and I'm always catching up, right? Because we get a lot more sales and I'm like, oh man, we need to scale up our infrastructure mm -hmm. in a very focused way. So I'd say, yeah, I think, I think sometimes I do feel like that. Okay. And how would you switch that dynamic? All right, what do you mean by that question? So if you feel <laughs> if you feel that the brand is a little bit bigger than the business today, that's an advantage. That can actually be an advantage right now. How would you switch that dynamic around? Look, that dynamic doesn't bother me, I think is the first thing, right? My focus is on um, keeping our strategy laser focused on our customer base, which is growing. Um, you know, I, I guess it, because it doesn't bother me, I manage my business the way I would do it as from day one. You know, I have like certain KPIs every year and I'm hitting them. I wouldn't, I think, like for example, if you're getting at, hey, I could launch organic yogurt or I could do 10 more things. You know, I've just realized that focus is critical, not just on your customer base, but with your product strategy. Um, and not letting your brand inflate your ego to think that you can do everything. You know, and, I, and I say that in the most humble sense because I've screwed up so many times. You know, we've gotten distracted and we've gone through flag planting exercises where we wanna be in 20 countries, you know, in 20 retailers. We've, we've experimented with other products that are really outside of our core. And I think I've learned over the years that, you know, maybe it's because I'm 48 and, you know, I've got daughters that I have no ego whatsoever, you know, and I'm just saying like, I don't care if the brand is bigger than the business. I need to focus on what's best for the business. And it's focus, managing our cash flows, watching our GP, 
and grow, not growing as fast as you can, but growing in the right way. I stay focused by reminding myself of all the mistakes I've made in the past. The second way I stay focused is I've got a board <laughs> right now, uh, and I've got two board members who just beat the crap out of me every time, and I love it. And they keep me super focused, super, super focused, like more focused than I think I would be. Um, but at the same time, you know, when it comes to scaling up the business via investment, you know, there's a couple thoughts that go in my mind, and, I, and maybe this may address what you're getting at. But as an entrepreneur, I feel a huge responsibility if I'm going to take someone else's money. Right? I feel like I'm obligated to them, and I need to have my shit together before I raise capital. Right? Um, and I, I use the analogy of an engine. Right? I don't want to put gas into a faulty engine. I want to have the engine perfect, clean. I want to have the right team. I want to have the right focus strategy. I want the proof of concept to be proven. I want to know that I can do something really well in one market before I start putting gas in the engine, right? That's been my philosophy. And part of it is I've been very smart and calculated uh, and humbled many times to like get to that, um, to get to that situation. And I feel like we've got a really good engine now. I'm not happy yet, you know, but, and, but, but once that's there, then I want to put gas in the engine. And from a, from a personal standpoint, it also allows me to retain a larger portion of the equity and not give up as much control if I've been able to sweat it out and build, you know, go from startup to SME to now, to now scaling. So does that kind of address what you're, yeah. what you're, get, what you're getting at? Yeah. Right. So I'm not against taking, honestly, I think every business at some point, depending on the personal motivation of the founder, taking investment is a great thing. You know, I just have slightly different requirements and philosophies, you know, for it. Yeah. Great. How do you see the brand evolving? So um, that question, that answer sort of changes as I evolve, you know, as a person. Uh, but right now, if you were to ask me today, and based on some really great meetings with my management team and board, you know, I'm, I'm super, I really like uh, RTD bev premium beverage. Um, and I want to just stay in that space because not only do we know the space really well and the retailers, online retailers, my supply chain, and all the GNA infrastructure in between, um, but I see a huge addressable market in our backyard, in our current markets, with our current contracts. The addressable market is massive and it's growing. The CAGRs are really, really big. So, you know. I, if, you, if you're asking where do I see the brand, I think further penetration in our current markets um, with some deviations and functionalities added to what we currently have, I think we can double or triple the business you know, quite easily. And that's, that's what I'm kind of focused on right now. I think in the long term, you know, I'd love the brand to be having the same reputation we have in our core markets all over the world, but I want to just take it one step at a time. Maybe one last question about this, and the, the last few questions are mostly about you as a founder. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you need to kind of segment your personal brand from the corporate brand, given that it's also named Koita? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny. My, so when I started the company, this is a little story. I asked my father-in-law what I should name the business. He's, he's a very famous food entrepreneur as well. 
And when I spoke to all the industry experts, they were like, don't name your company after your name. It's like the worst thing you could do. You know, like everyone from all the CP, blue chip CPG guys are like, that's the stupidest thing that you could do. And, um, and then my father-in-law was like, well, what do you want to do with it? And I said, you know, I want to build this brand. And at the time I was like, I want to give it to my kids. Although I think my kids might just ruin the business. Who knows? Um, but you know, I like, I like to really build up a wonderful brand and, you know, make, um, make parenting decisions, family decisions, and not purely commercial decisions while I'm building up our, our product brand and, and, and whatnot. And he's like, well, put your name on it. And, um, you know, first I'm kind of lucky because Koita is a very unique name. It sounds kind of cool from what people have told me. Um, and I did that and it forced me to start making, I didn't cut corners. Like when I went to Singapore, by the way, I was in the aisle like merchandising my product because it's like my baby. Mm -hmm. Like this is like so personal. So there is a pro and a con to, to naming it after yourself. But all of the biggest companies in the world were some family at some point before they, you know, did their series A and raise and sold to, to a bigger company. So to answer your question, um, I'm a lot less uh, emotional about it now as I've gotten older and wiser. But in the beginning, it kind of helped me because it really, you know, ensured that I kept things to a personal family standard. And that's a very profitable, um, that's a very profitable way of looking at your brand. So you mentioned that you come from the school of hard knocks and you're maybe not the prototypical founder. Could you expand that a little bit? So um, it depends what you call a prototypical, prototypical founder. But I felt like, yeah, to your point, I think I got my biggest lessons in entrepreneurship through personal struggles and professional struggles. So um, I feel like I've learned how to manage, recruit and motivate and manage my team by being a really good boss. And I honestly act like I work for my employees. That's the philosophy I believe you have to have. You can call it a Western philosophy. It's a very flat organization. And I got that because I had the shittiest bosses when I was growing up, just the worst bosses ever. They were screwing me, promising me stuff. And I think because I went through that, I was like, why the hell would I work for someone if they're gonna treat me like shit, basically? Um, in my personal life, I think one of the biggest elements I've had is to my success is persistence, you know? And I think I had a pretty tough childhood. I didn't have a lot of money growing up. Uh, my father is a Gujarati Indian who came to the US, which is the cheapest race in the world. You know, like he's Gujarati Indians will like, like my, my birthday was like, here's five bucks and go to McDonald's. And I was like, wow, this is great. You know what I mean? Or even now today, if I take my dad to a nice restaurant, he'll have like the best lunch. And then right when he sees the prices, he'll get mad at me, you know? He'll be like, this sucks, you know? So. So, I mean, I've had to learn, I think because I had, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, I appreciate it more because uh, I had to start working when I was 13, busting tables. I know, I know what all that means. I know what persistence means because I've been able to get almost everything I want, not because of a connection or not because of a degree, but because I keep knocking on that door, you know, and I keep knocking and knocking. I'll try different ways or I'll try different doors, but I think my hard knocks has allowed me to learn the value of persistence. And that, to answer your question, I think those are just a couple examples of things that have really, that's the real core that's helped me become successful. When you say you kind of feel like um, you work for your employees, what does that mean on the ground? Um, it means that like in our office, 
we don't even have cubicles. It's just open. I sit next to my junior level ops guy on one side. We have like floating desks and stuff. Maybe similar to here too. Um, it means that I lead by example. So there are times uh, when we didn't have very senior you know, people in the company, I was with my merchandisers in the car. I was going and visiting Carrefour Yas Mall and talking to this, the OSS manager and listening and asking them what, what would help us, you know? Um, ordering our Ikea furniture, you know, uh, six, seven years ago and building our desk. I think leading by example really is the essence of that. And there's no task beneath me, you know? And I think, I think um, when there's a problem with an employee, it's not the employee that I get mad at, it's the situation, right? And I ask the employee, okay, here's the situation. What do you need from me? And it just changes the dynamic, you know, of how, and it's not all about money, retaining employees. You know, they want to feel listened to, they want to feel respected. And frankly, it's a very profitable tactic because the person that's in the store merchandising the shelf knows a lot more than I do in my cubicle at Coida, right? right. That's the best information that right. you're going to get. So we're very like consumer driven and we're really like in the field driven. And I think because I was a salesperson most of my life, I, I, I learned to value that yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, all right. I think maybe we can switch gears for the last time, unless anyone has a final question. You do. Go ahead, yeah, Hassan. Yeah, I, th I think that's the art, right? Is how do you uh, retain that culture? How do you retain that agility? How do you retain that customer-driven um, style, right? And as we've gone from SM uh, startup to SME to now we're scaling up and, you know, we've got the blue chip, you know, our head of marketing has been 15 years at Johnson & Johnson. So she's, you know, people like that have come from a very process-driven um, or more process oriented business. Um, I think that's the art, you know, and how, and, and how do you do that? And we don't get it right all the time, but we're constantly looking at our processes and trying to make them as efficient as possible. And it is possible. We've got a fairly large business now and we still retain our agility and we still retain a lot of our, our culture, but it's not easy. It's no, it's not an easy task. It's not an easy task at all. But look, at the same time, you know, when you're selling millions of liters of milk, you absolutely need that blue chip experience and processes and quality to make sure that you're also protecting your supply chain and your sales channels and, and things like that. So I can't tell you like exactly what we do right now, but you, it's, a, it's a compromise of both and it changes every year as our business scales. But I really appreciate the process. It's very healthy for the business. Yeah. 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 So do you think plant-based is healthier? Yeah. So, so I'll tell you that in my experience, um, every single person, depending on who they are and at what stage they are in their life has different dietary requirements. So, uh, a two-year-old 
may need a 200 ml whole organic milk because organic cow's milk still has the highest amount of protein per 100 ml in the world, right? Someone who um, has a lactose intolerance issue who can't digest regular cow milk may need lactose-free milk, right? Someone who has an allergy to milk in general may have to go to almond milk. Someone who has a nut allergy may have to go to rice milk, right? So I can't, there's no best milk. It really depends on what stage you are in your life and what your dietary requirements are for you yourself, right? And you have to ask the doctor for that. I think for us, what we've tried to do is being a very consumer-driven business, we're actually one of the only brands in the region that provides plant and dairy and lactose-free. And what we've realized is that you know, the family unit from our proprietary primary research shows that the mom is buying her kid 200 ml whole, uh, one kid or husband may be lactose intolerant, and she's putting almond milk in her, in her cappuccino in the morning, you know? So, so there's different, different requirements for everything. And sometimes none of those are right for the person, you know, but you have to, you have to find out. But I can't tell you which one's best for everyone because it's a different answer yeah. for everyone as well. So the trend, so, so, so if I were to look at like data, right? The CAGR for plant-based milk is the highest, right? Plant-based milk is on trend. It's very, very high. And within the plant-based milk space, almond and oat are your two biggest um, plant milks. Everything else is kind of like a, a, an other category. Lactose-free milk, we've realized is actually larger than the organic dairy space. There's a lot more people. It's, there are more people that are lactose intolerant that require that type of milk than the organic market in general. And that's growing, for us, is growing at a higher CAGR than plant-based milks. And, uh, and then organic dairy. But they're, all three of them are in the healthy living space. I think conventional milk is where you're seeing a lot of displacement and people are, con you know, they're converting right now to probably one of those, those three in, in the milk space. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Okay, okay. okay. Cool. Okay. Yeah, go for it. means like, you know, the pricing, what's your pricing strategy? You know, as you grow, you want to make, uh, uh, you know, organic milk for everyone. I remember like three, four years back, uh, you know, I left my job doing stuff, I, didn't, I couldn't afford to do milk. You know, <laughs> at that time, it was a bit expensive. Yeah, yeah. Me, you know, so I think going, growing and all that, so you want to penetrate new markets. Yeah. New uh, market segments. Uh, so what's your pricing strategy? Yeah, so the pricing strategy has also got to be consumer driven, right? And based on a lot of, we're doing a lot of tests and learns. And when we launched the brand seven years ago, we're, we were very expensive. You know, a lot of that had to do with the fact that we didn't have the scale. We weren't as efficient with our supply chain. You know, we were just getting started, right? We had a much higher, when you have lower volumes at a retailer, they're going to take a higher margin from you because their, their, their total gross profit is less too. So there's a lot of different things happening. As we've gotten larger, we've been lucky enough to, to bring our price point down, with the exception of last year, where everyone got 20 price increases with, with, with the war and whatnot. However, you know, for us, I'd like to make our premium products more accessible. And so it's great and sexy to start at the, be at the tip of the pyramid and be at that price point. But you know, I, I personally like the mass premium space. It's a much bigger uh, addressable market. And we're starting to look at, at that. We're starting to play in that market already with our price points. And I think you'll see as we grow and get more supply chain efficiencies, you know, more volume buying power, 
we're going to start going into that into that market. Cool. Yeah. Rapid fire questions. Let's go. Okay. Okay. I'll start with the simple ones. Are you lactose intolerant? I'm not lactose intolerant, but my son Danielle is, and he's the, one of the in, one of the reasons I really got into lactose free milk. Okay. Okay. Fair. Do you still think entrepreneurship is a shit show? Oh, it's a total shit show. I Why? mean, like. You know, a lot of people will watch Shark Tank and they start their business and they get a little bit of PR and they think this thing is like so easy. But, you know, I think there were like three, four years where I was like almost out of business, crying, scared about what my friends would think, thinking I'd be a, a failure in front of my dad, you know. And um, luckily, you know, I had the confidence and persistence to, to, to prove to myself, actually, uh, that I could do it. But it's tough, but I'll tell you, um, the greatest gratification I ever got in my entire life is my father uh, is a 75 year old Indian father has given me one compliment in my entire life. Um, and then two years ago, we launched in the United States and our milk made it into the Wall Street Journal. Mm. And as I was growing the brand over the last seven years, I'd send my dad like these Instagram links and email links and all this kind of stuff. And he doesn't care. He's like, I don't know what this is. He's like, unless it's in my whole my sprouts, my whole foods. I don't know what you're doing, Mustafa. This the is Wall all Street like journal. Yeah, yeah. So my father reads the Wall Street Journal every day, like clockwork. And so in July 21, in the summer, he actually went to his doorstep, picked up the Wall Street Journal and saw his family name mm. right next to Oatley and Elmhurst on in the Wall Street Journal. And it was like the proudest moment ever. He's like, all right, now this kid, you know, like made something of himself. And that's, that's the second time I ever got a compliment from my father. So I was like, oh, good. Um, and so, you know, you, you hustle. It is a shit show, but um, it's worth it. You know, these little wins make, make it worth, you know, it. And, and entrepreneurship, I'll tell you, also is a huge personal journey. Like the guy I was uh, when I started and the person I am now, I'm a lot more mature, a lot more humbled. I think a lot more focused, it changes you as a person. And that's a really wonderful journey if you have the opportunity to do it. Okay. Who do you admire the most as a leader? Oh, there's so many people. First um, person that comes to mind. Uh, my dad, probably. Okay. My dad uh, grew up in Bombay. His house was like, you know, smaller than a new capital bathroom, you know, and... Uh, I don't know how big your bathroom is, but <laughs> I didn't take that back. But he grew up in the, you know, and he's like one of those real success stories. He mm -hmm. took, got on a flight, went to the U.S. with nothing, um, went to Madison, you know, was like a janitor and like really worked his way up, uh, got his first job. Uh, my mom died when I was 13 and he was smart enough to remarry. And I had two stepbrothers and just raised this like Brady bunch of a family and it, with with the utmost of, you know, um, standard uh, for us. And um, I think if I look at like my persistence and the core and like where the fire came from, he sort of inspired it. Like what he did for us, um, you know, it makes me want to work hard and make him more proud and get that third compliment hopefully mm -hmm. someday. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. Would you sell your company for the right price? <laughs> um, I love it so much, but I think at this stage, you know, I'm 48. Um, I don't know if my kids are going to be in the business or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are those are questions that I'm asking myself now. Uh, and a lot of it's based on personal um, 
personal goals of what I want to do, you know, and after after Coida. So the short answer is yes. Okay. Yeah. What is the one thing you would have done differently now in hindsight? Nothing. Okay. I wouldn't have done anything. I think my most catastrophic failures were my biggest blessings in disguise. And I'll give you even actually a realistic example that's recent. Uh, we grew, we doubled our business in just when COVID happened, right? And um, after COVID, logistics was a nightmare. You know, companies would order contain. We our, our our distributors order monthly. I remember our Kuwaiti distributor ordered in October, and then they ordered in November containers, sea freight containers, and the November containers arrived before the October. That was like every customer. It was just a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And then um, the next, so so supply. We learned a big lesson in supply chain. Um, and that you got to treat your supply chain partners just like you do the banks. You know what I mean? Um, and then we had three years of three price increases during inflation. And I think those are some those were tough years, but we learned so much from those last two years that we're now having the best year ever because we learned from that. You know, and I've had moments where my, you know, GCC distributor was holding on a quarter million dollar payment. And I thought I was going to get screwed, you know, and we learned, you know, that, you know, everyone's got to put up an LC and you got to secure your international receivables. So I, I don't think I'd change anything in principle. I think they were all, you know, great opportunities to learn. And I'm still learning now, even today, from my employees, from partners, from my worst enemies, from my competition. I'm still learning. And I think that's that's the, the, the headline that I want to share with you. Okay. What's next for Koita? Um, so I'm excited about the next couple years. I think now that I've brought on a board, they've, they've given me an opportunity. And, and now that we're bigger, we've got the luxury of doing one and two year st strategic plans. You know, you're always putting out fires kind of in the early days. Um, and I see a lot of massive, uh, growth opportunities ahead of us. I'm excited about the engine, you know, and where we've got it. And so I think there's, uh, there's just a lot of opportunity to grow. I think we just need to decide where we focus our limited time and resources. All right. Yeah. Okay, I think this wraps up episode 22 of our podcast. I think we're running a little bit over time. So thank you so much, yeah, Mustafa thank you. and Mariuxi, for your patience. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks it was a for, pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.